do it. If we <laughs> risk moving too fast, we risk not hearing anything at all. And I think about that a lot as a white person learning from close friends and colleagues like Tanisha, right? Like, uh, it, it, and, and Keith, what you mentioned about sort of the workshops, like, what do I do? What do I do now? You know, the title of Tanisha and I's chapter uh, is The Enormity of Whiteness or On the Enormity of Whiteness in Higher Education. Uh, and so I know it felt like I dumped a ton on you in that first question, but our goal with those three guiding questions that guide critical whiteness praxis is to get folks to think mm -hmm. in, in, in ways that move beyond individual white people or good and bad actors yeah. uh, and think more expansively about whiteness. Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Today, I'm joined by the editors of the book, Critical Whiteness Praxis in Higher Education, Considerations for the Pursuit of Racial Justice on Campus. We'll be discussing both theory and practice with these great folks. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and online learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find details about this episode or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Simplicity, a true partner. Simplicity supports all aspects of student life with technology platforms that empower institutions to make data-driven decisions. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a speaker, consultant, and coach. You can find out more about me at keithedwards.com. I'm broadcasting from Minneapolis, Minnesota at the intersections of the ancestral homelands of both the Dakota and the Ojibwe peoples. Let's get to our conversation. Thank you both for joining us today. Uh, let's start off with some introductions. And Tanisha, we're going to start with you. Uh, good afternoon here on the West Coast. Uh, Tanisha Tevis, she, her are my pronouns. I'm an associate professor of adult and higher education here at Oregon State University, which resides on the lands of the Kalipuya people. Um, and I have the pleasure of studying um, for my research, my research agenda. I look at students' transition to college and the relationship between leadership and identity to really address patterns of inequality and exclusion. Um, I also used to be a scholar practitioner. I was an administrator and faculty member for a number of years. And so um, it was in that role where I had a chance to observe what I now know as whiteness and then all roads in academia lead to a conference mm -hmm. and particular hotels <laughs> where you meet great people like uh, Zach. And so I had an opportunity to co-edit this book with him and other projects. Awesome. Well, Zach, we, you've got already got a compliment, which we know you're a big fan of. So tell us more about you. Sure thing. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Zach Fosti. I use he, him pronouns. Um, assistant professor at the University of Kansas uh, here in Lawrence, which resides on the ancestral lands of the Kaw, Osage, and uh, Shawnee people. Um, I've been at the University of Kansas now for uh, going on my sixth year. Uh, a lot of my research explores issues of whiteness in higher education, largely from two different angles, uh, both which I think come through in, in the book uh, and how the book unfolds, but the first being sort of uh, how whiteness structures and underwrites camp racially hostile, unwelcoming campus environments. Um, and the second being sort of white students' relationship to race and whiteness and, and how we might move white students to more expansive or critically conscious ways uh, of thinking about uh, race and whiteness. And I've gotten to know Tanisha not as only a collaborator and co-author, but as one of my dearest friends going back to um, the annual the Association for the Study of Higher Ed meeting, ASH, back five some years ago and this yeah. project was really a, a labor of love and so um really cool to be here and get to chat with you about it Keith yeah well I know you both have uh released the book uh about a year ago uh have talked about it in lots of webinars um some packed rooms at ACPA and some other conferences <laughs> so we know this is really interesting we've been wanting to talk about this with you uh that whole time and I'm glad we're finally getting a chance to sit down and do it so let's just start with this uh, term, critical whiteness praxis. What exactly uh, do we mean by critical whiteness praxis? Help us unpack this a little bit. And Zach, we're going to start with you. Yeah, so I'll back up just a little bit and talk about the motivations of the book and then how we sort of get to the notion of critical whiteness praxis. And I'll defer to some of that to Tanisha because she really pushed us throughout this process to constantly think about practical application and moving folks to action. And You know, this not just being sort of like a, a, a theorizing exercise. So 
our hope was with this book was like, there's all this really great sort of theoretical and conceptual work out there on the nature of whiteness and in the critical study of whiteness. Uh, and a lot of it has really emerged and proliferated out of the last like decade or so, but we weren't sure how much of it was really getting to practitioners in sort of an accessible and practical way. And so our hope was to develop this sort of text that, you know, bridge theory and practice. And, and, and a point we make in the introductory chapter that we wrote together is like, this isn't a book that's necessarily like for white people or about white people per se, right? It's not like an anti-racist self-help book or a book about white identity development. There are great books on that. Like some of my own work is in that mm -hmm. area, uh, but we wanted this book to really be uh, an invitation to think more expansively and broadly about whiteness. And mm -hmm. so what we try to do in the book is rather than reduce whiteness to like an identity or individual white people alone is to think about whiteness as an ideology, uh, as a structure, how it uh, mm -hmm. organizes our campuses, how it structures campus climates, um, and how as an ideology whiteness sort of functions. Um, mm -hmm really is like a lens through which people see the world, act on the world, think about the world, organize their thoughts, move uh, through campus on a daily basis. And as an ideology, we think about whiteness as being fundamentally a historical, highly individualistic, and uh, in a way of seeing the world that really um, uplifts uh, white people, white knowledge, white ways of knowing and being. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so that's from where we start. And then what we do in the introduction of, of the text then is, in, is um, introduce or offer these three questions. And I'll just share those briefly because these are sort of how we anchor critical whiteness practice. And then I'll, I'll turn it over to Tanisha. The first is one, how is whiteness rendered normative and raceless on campus? And how does whiteness then position faculty, staff, and students of color in relation to that white normative center? Hmm. Number two, how does whiteness induce a state of racial ignorance among both white individuals and institutions? And what are the consequences of hmm. such ignorance at both the hmm. level of individuals and institutions? And finally, how does whiteness encourage white individuals and institutions to maintain a sense of racial innocence, to remain so certain of their goodness and effect detaching themselves from systems and structures and why are those desires so strong? So those are the questions, the sort of scaffold, or I guess, anchor uh, critical whiteness praxis as we conceive of it in the book. Mm, I just wanna, I just wanna pause and breathe. That's, that's a lot. Thank you, Zach, <laughs> you're doing great. That's a lot of context. Mm. And I think those questions are powerful and we probably do an hour on each of them, yeah. but really, um, I love that you're not talking particularly about white people or white identity, but this concept and how it affects so many of us uh, and the othering um, and centering mm -hmm. and the obliviousness. Um, I do a lot of work around uh, aspiring allyship and thinking about uh, good intentions not being good enough, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that innocence and, and if, yeah. if we just don't talk about it, then I'm fine, right? The, uh, mm -hmm. uh, a race neutral position, not being neutral at all. And I, I think those questions guiding. So we'll just take that in and allow for it. And <laughs> Tanisha, take us to the next level. Well, I don't know if I can take it to another level. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But, I, you know, to follow up, I, I consider myself a, a, a praxis scholar mm -hmm. in that as a former leader, I wanted to write to leaders. I wanted to write to administrators. I wanted to write to people to get the job done. Mm -hmm. And in, in my own discovery of whiteness, it is seemingly heady right? It, it is, mm. you know, people don't know what it is. Um, it's not delineated as, for example, critical race theory, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there have been some delineations, but there's also been some fog around it, right? Mm -hmm. And so how- It can be kind of some, jargony. It can be, right? Yeah. Like what is whiteness, right? What yeah. is praxis? And so um, I really wanted to spend some time writing and doing work in my own research agenda and in this project with Zach on offering help to someone because there was also this moment in this uptick where people were like my whiteness my whiteness oh that's my whiteness excuse my whiteness and i wanted to move out of that to to show whiteness manifestation right and so we were really wanting to ensure that the academy knew what whiteness was or is and how it manifested on campus and so um then this this shifted then the focus um to the material consequences of whiteness right mm -hmm. meaning its effects on our campus and so in in really laying the groundwork um and some of the efforts um truly led by um zach we drew on the concept of from paulo ferry's liberation now liberation is rarely 
united with whiteness, right? But that mm -hmm. is actually from where we're trying to be free, right? right? That's that's the bond we're trying to break. And so, um, and, and it is this like freedom from oppressive practices, right? Um, and they're gained through confronting the reality critically, right? Critical has a bad name in this day and time, but it, it means to objectively observe, right? To see something in itself, mm -hmm. um, objectifying it and then acting upon it. And so we needed to name whiteness and demonstrate whiteness was real and mm -hmm. the consequences like you said especially for those who've been othered by it to truly incite transformational action and so we believe that this book allows that and lays the foundation for that well let me ask about that because i think it, it probably is clear to most of the folks watching and listening about how whiteness negatively impacts bipoc people of color people who experience racism but then this liberation and Frary also talking about how it negatively affects while also granting privilege um, white folks. And so could could both of you talk a little bit about the effects of whiteness and the benefits of this critical praxis uh, for people who experience yeah. racial privilege and those who experience racial oppression? Yeah. I can start off. I think one of the pieces we hit on in the book, so interesting context, like Tanisha and I came together to write this book, really, I would say, uh, or, or the, the crux of it was like summer of 2020, right? Mm -hmm. So you can't escape like the writing of the text about whiteness and inviting chapter authors to write about whiteness outside of mm -hmm. everything that was happening in the summer of 2020. And Tanisha and I tried to write about that in the, the introductory chapter of like how everything happening in the summer of 2020 right. into sort of mirrors what's happening on campus. Well, and that was COVID. That was the murder of George Floyd yep. here in Minneapolis, where I am, and so many yep. other things going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so there's this context of writing. And I, I would say, like, for me, if you're talking about the consequences, like much, much of the book is detailing the consequences of whiteness in the lives of folks of color, mm -hmm. right? Um, traditionally, when folks have written about whiteness i think particularly in our discipline it's been about white people white identity development white critical consciousness uh ally development again all useful mm -hmm. but what we wanted yep. this text to be about really was how does whiteness structure campus environments uh so that we might have some sort of precision in the language we use mm -hmm. uh, so you know one of the ideas we talk about in the book uh we introduce some different theoretical concepts mm -hmm. as part of the book and we talk about something like white normativity right um how does whiteness function in such a way that certain yeah. individuals are the assumed occupants of our laboratories, classrooms, student organizations, our faculties? Mm -hmm. um, right. And who represents, uh, you know, sociologist Elijah Anderson would talk about who are the unexpected guests or visitors, the disruptions to sort of the normative mm -hmm. white sensibilities about who should be mm -hmm. in a space, right? So uh, one thing we tried to make clear with the book is, a danger of whiteness work can be that it sort of colonizes these spaces that largely scholars of color have been taking up for a long time. What we want to do is put this into conversation with that type of work mm -hmm. and say one sort of tool or concept folks might think with is, is white normativity. And, and so, for instance, Lauren Irwin penned a really powerful chapter mm -hmm. in the first half of the yeah. book. It's one of the guiding questions of critical whiteness praxis. How yeah. is whiteness sort of rendered as normative? Uh, and, and how does that sort of universal particular dynamic work? How is whiteness the universal, the center? And how is everyone who departs from that sort of at the margin or the particular manifestation mm -hmm. of, of a departure from whiteness? Anisha, mm -hmm. you, you want to add, add here before we jump into more of the theory? So will you ask your question one more time? Well, I was just curious about the effects of whiteness for those who experience racism and those who experience racial privilege. And Zach sort of mm -hmm. saying, you wanted to center the experience sure. of those who experience racial oppression. So, so it's twofold. I, I went back to, um, because I have the book. <laughs> <So I went. laughs> Show it so, again. Just Show it so people can see it. Yeah, let them see it. There you go. Um, yeah. I went back to the chapter that Natasha, and I reference it later, but I, I went back to the ch chapter that Natasha Kroom and I wrote, and we talked about, so there's two things. We open our chapter with the account of January 6th, mm -hmm. right? And and really the consequences of whiteness in that moment, right? And, and how you can frame that through multiple lenses, right? But we really, because the book was about critical whiteness practice, we wanted people to see it 
to Zach's point contextually as we're writing about this for higher ed. And then also in our chapter, we have um, three overarching claims, but the biggest one is that whiteness as opposed to white people solely is an overlooked progenitor to anti-Black racism. Mm -hmm. And so we really center the idea that this is a founding, I'll use a word from Zach, a bedrock system mm -hmm. for some of these other systems that have caused, that are oppressive and suppressive, right? And so we really wanted to show um, basically, and I say this later, the reach of whiteness, right? Mm -hmm. in, in, in not just a privileging or an identity system, but really as a harmful system and in its normativity internalized by all of us, but also the author of um, other large harmful systems that are equally at play at the same time. And right. so that for me is um, really where that lies for the consequences, the material consequences um, in the lives of people of color and for sure, um, anti-Blackness, anti-Black racism, right? Yeah. Zach said something point, poignant when we were first starting this project, you know, um, populations in particular, white people don't know themselves absent of, right? Like Black people. And so they're, the two have to, the two interact, the two engage in order um, to function um, as it has and create the consequences as it has in the lives of people of color. Yeah. Thank you. Um, as as you pointed to, the book is is theory and practice, praxis. Um, um, let's talk a little bit about the theory and then we'll come to the practice. Um, so the, the first part of the book is focused on theory. What are some of the theoretical underpinnings? And, and if we've, I think we've gotten to some of them already. So feel free to, to do that, that can inform how we think about I got critical whiteness. Yeah, I, so we touched on normativity a little bit, and that's mm -hmm. really central to, I think, the entire book. And you see that play out in a lot of the practice chapters, right? Like one of the things we tried to drive home in the book, uh, like a major way whiteness operates on campus is sort of by drawing boundaries of inclusion and exclusion again, right? Like who is the natural occupant of the residence hall or the student organization mm -hmm. or the classroom? And who is sort of the unexpected departure of that space? How does whiteness operate in that way? So that's that's one theoretical idea, but we've, we've hit on that one. So I guess another one I would return to um, are notions of, of white racial ignorance. And I, I think when people hear that, they're maybe sort of put off or unsure what we're getting at. The, the term comes from Charles Mills' work and the racial contract. And uh, it, it, it's thinking about sort of institutionally or socially produced ways of not knowing, right? So it's mm -hmm. less about um, sort of this like passive, you know, lack of knowledge, right? A mm -hmm. gap in knowing. Uh, which is, I think, often how we think about our trainings and our workshops, right? That like people just don't know. So if we give them content uh, uh, in, a, in an hour mm. workshop, uh, yeah. they do better. Uh, what we were trying to get at with the, the, the white racial ignorance piece is, is how is that ignorance? And, and again, this goes back to a number of, of theorists, Mills and Zeus Leonardo and others. But how is whiteness on campus produce via ignorance, via like a sustained, determined unwillingness not to know, not to have to confront the, the histories and the horrors of white supremacy. I think one of the ways that plays out and we're seeing it now uh, is uh, the anti-CRT laws, the anti-DEI laws. We're replacing anything that sort of has a structural or systemic focus with um, maybe these more celebratory diversity efforts. Let's all get along. Uh, let's all learn about difference, but without any sort of underlying sort of structures or systems um, right. that produce inequities across that difference. So that's sort of what we're getting at with with the racial ignorance piece. Uh, and again, I think the authors in the in, in the practice session really help play out yeah. how racial ignorance so determined and willful plays out in fraternity sorority life or in leadership organizations or in LGBTQ centers. And again, the consequences of that ignorance. Mm. It's really interesting to me because I, I certainly relate to that about so many things that I continue to find out that I don't know, didn't didn't learn about. And then also pointing out how there were opportunities along the way for me to know about it a little bit and be more curious, but it felt uncomfortable to me. It felt like, well, if I really learn about that, that might be painful or I might feel guilty or I might mm -hmm. feel a sense of responsibility. And so um, it's more comfortable for me as a white person to stay ignorant because uh, in large part, I don't have to 
right? It's not going to be on the test. It's not going to be a part of dinner table conversation. And so I, I get mm. to stay in that space. And I and I hear more and more people hearing, learning about things and being like, well, how is it that I didn't know about Tulsa? How is that possible? Yeah, I mean, I was, a, I was a U.S. history major. <laughs> it never came up. And this is where the I really appreciate it, Tanisha and I sort of different positioning to the text and these ideas and how we <laughs> move through the world very differently, right? And, and how mm -hmm. whiteness is structured our lives very differently. And I, and I think one of the things we we try to make in the book clear is like it, the, the third theoretical idea we introduce is white innocence, right? And it's that ignorance, that not knowing or that willingness to know or to engage mm -hmm. that allows for us white folks to... Uh, particularly progressive white folks who are doing anti-racist mm -hmm. work to 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 maintain that illusion of innocence or being mm -hmm. one of the good ones. And that feels especially powerful in the age of Trump and this renewed sort of rise of, of white nationalism to feel safe over here being one of the the good ones. Um, yes. and, and so not losing sight of how that ignorance contributes to that innocence. Yes. Oh, boy, that resonates with me, wanting to be um, the temptation to be exceptional. Right? Mm. a different kind of white person different from all those other white people yeah. but um yeah um I mean, anything go ahead tanisha well no you know I, I also feel like ignorance gets a bad rap right because there's ignorance and just not knowing right and then there's willful ignorance right mm -hmm. the connotation of ignorance though is like we just don't know right mm -hmm. we can be ignorant to the facts right but I, I i do think that there is a you know, in in the ignorance, there are people who choose to stay in that space, right? And and Zach, we we talk about like, what do you do when you're uncomfortable, right, with this work? And like you were saying, yeah. and so that yeah. allows people to stay ignorant and it, it, under this illusion of innocence, right? Like mm -hmm. because they, oh, I'm uncomfortable, I'm going to shut it down. But one of the things we talked about is like, I don't get to shut it down. I don't right. I don't get to walk away from a situation. Um, because it makes me uncomfortable because I'm reading it, right? Or I don't, I haven't had this lived yeah. experience. And so, you know, again, in in dabbling in, in whiteness the way we have, it feels like a heavy lift, right? It, it just feels like, you know, um, well, I don't know what to do with it. You know, it's not me, it's outside of me. Um, and yet we all toe the line of it, mm -hmm. right? Um, and when we, when we think about, whiteness in this way, it, it, you know, we talk about whiteness from everything from privilege to fragility, mm -hmm. right? And all these in, in between, but really in wanting to get to praxis, these were the, the frameworks we needed to get people to see the ways in which we operate in higher ed, right? It, mm -hmm. in, in, in the industrial complex that gives us knowledge, we, mm -hmm. we are very unknowledgeable sometimes. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a word, but Zach knows I make up words all the time, right? And so we offer in these opening chapters what we thought would be helpful for, for the reader to understand how whiteness shows up in the remaining chapters. And most importantly, for me, and this is also, you know, one of our, I won't say it's one of our great debates, but, you know, Zach has really pushed me in my own thinking and my own analysis. It was important for me to move the conversation beyond white people um, because I did not want, I did not want the the guilt or whatever comes about, the fragility mm -hmm. to get them to walk away and really focus on this as a systemic endeavor right and, mm -hmm. and one that is constantly manifesting itself and reinforcing itself mm -hmm. um and i i think we i think we did a solid job in presenting mm -hmm. the, the theories mm -hmm. for that I, I appreciate that point i mean and keep some of the pieces you're talking about like I, I what we didn't want i think right is like for white folks to feel so like um yeah trapped in guilt from this text sort of feel so suspended that they couldn't engage in action right that the idea was uh, and there is a chapter about white identity development in here authored by mm -hmm. Melvin Whitehead and his colleagues. It's a really wonderful model to think more critically about how white folks move through phases of thinking about identity. You know, I think one of the things that I kept thinking about throughout the text as I was working with Tanisha was, you know, this idea uh, of innocence and, and what an obstacle that can be for like meaningful racial justice work, both at the mm -hmm. institutional level and the individual level. Because, you know, Tanisha and I would frequently be texting or talking as we were editing and working, probably more texting than working at some points. <laughs> but right, it's like, you know, summer of 2020, there was a different statement that came out from a different university president yeah. every day. 
right? Mm -hmm. And we're seeing it again, actually, the last few weeks with uh, the rollback of, of affirmative action and race conscious admissions, yeah. right? Like, uh, it, there's always this discourse of like, uh, it's bad elsewhere, but here we get it. We're the good campus. We're the progressive campus. Maybe mm -hmm. racism is an issue here or there, but not here, right? We see this whenever there's like the racist theme party, for instance, around mm -hmm. Halloween. The yep. chancellor provost will instantly say racism has no place here it's not born here we don't allow this type of work but that that level the desire to be innocent or good and i remember this in my own journey trying to do this mm -hmm. work too and still fall trapped to it right like mm -hmm. wanting to say like how do you not understand how do you not see this how do you not right. get it but again then we sort of take ourselves outside of the picture and i think that was important for us in this book was reminding folks that this is structural, this is historical, this is ideological, not to let white folks off the hook, uh, but to say, ground yourself in this broader system and yeah. think about yeah. operating institutionally. Well, and I think for me, those those normativity and ignorance and innocence, seeing them as structural things, as systemic things, I think for me as a white person makes me, gives me... Um, it's not something wrong with me that I have that white innocence or I'm, I want to avoid discomfort. It's like, oh, that's how the system works. Now what do I do? <laughs> now, mm -hmm. How do I want to be different? How do I want to do something different? Um, so for me, I really relate to those things. It helps me see that in myself, see mm -hmm. that in others, see that in systems and structures. Um, I want to move us to the practice because as yeah. you're talking, I'm super excited about the practice part <laughs> because in the summer of 2020, after the murder of George Floyd here in Minneapolis, I did a bunch of workshops uh, for white people who want to be better anti-racist allies. And the thing, and I know we don't want to make it about white people, so moving in that direction, yep. But the thing that I heard again and again and again is I get it, I understand, I'm furious, just tell me what to do. I don't know what to do. As though there's some magical yeah. thing and I think there's, um, you know, the, the ignorance and the innocence are bound up right there. And how I heard that and experienced it myself is I don't want to get it wrong. I don't want to mess up. I don't want to be criticized. Um, and that sort of the perfectionism part of that. And so how do we get at this in practice? What can people do um, to change some of these structures and systems in higher ed? Uh, to move things forward for everyone. That go for it. Isha, do you want to start with this one? You... <laughs> I, I want to respond to quickly. Yeah. Keith. So I think the biggest challenge that I've had in the last couple of years in doing some of the, you know, trainings and, and supporting people is the what do you want me to do? Just give mm -hmm. me what you want me to do. And it doesn't work that way. Because there also has to, because part of what I want you to do is reflect and yeah. own and understand, right? But then there's another part of me that there there is no quick fix and it's not our responsibility to give you that. Context dictates this, scenarios dictate this. Um, other identities? The, yeah, other identities dictate this. And so it's, it's, it's a bit of a challenge for me. Um, and this happens on my own campus. This happens in working with other people where it's like, just tell me what to do. Give me yeah. a bullet list. And people come with a pencil and the paper. Recipe. Give right? me the recipe. And, they want it. and, you know, you can give me a recipe. All three of us can make zucchini bread, right? Mm -hmm. And it would probably taste a tinge different for whatever reason. And so I, I, I think that moving away from this to-do list, because what people really want is a toolkit. The book is not mm -hmm. a toolkit. Yeah. It's an invitation to be critical, mm -hmm. right? And and to substantively, right? And I, I really do want to encourage people to come out of, give me what to do. And I want people to sit with, this is a long process. This is well predates us and my parents and all of our families. And so I think it's leaning into gaining an understanding first, mm -hmm. right? And then doing the work, but I, I'll come off my soapbox to defer to Zach and, and then I'll follow up after that. But the, what do you want me to do? I really want people to let go of that because they want a toolkit and toolkits. Sometimes you're going to use the wrong tool on a different part. It'll get the job right. done, but it's not what you need. Right. And I, I want a to-do list means like we have come to absolution. We figured right. it out and we haven't. We're well, I also think it. it's about 
Yeah, I think it's a little bit about absolution. And it's a little bit if I do the 12 steps that Zach and Tanisha recommend and it doesn't yeah. go well, then I'm not to blame. It's Zach and Tanisha, right? Yeah. And so there's a there's a not wanting to take responsibility, not wanting to receive criticism, not wanting to mess it up, and yeah. then not doing anything. Right. And and you want people to reflect and be thoughtful. Yeah. And do something. <laughs> in and, their discomfort. In, in your their discomfort. discomfort. That's right. That's right. I'm reminded of a quote and I'm probably going to butcher it, but it's from Sarah Ahmed and they write about, uh, you know, sometimes if we risk acting too fast, we don't hear anything at all. Yeah. Right? No, can you say that again? Yeah. And I'm probably. We won't hold you to it. We'll say you're a, paraphrasing. It's not so a just, direct citation, yeah. but <laughs> if we risk moving too fast, we risk not hearing anything at all. And I think about that a lot because a white person learning from close friends and colleagues like Tanisha, right? Like, uh, it, it, and, and Keith, what you mentioned about sort of the workshops, like, what do I do? What do I do now? You know, the title of Tanisha and I's chapter uh, is The Enormity of Whiteness or On the Enormity of Whiteness in Higher Education. Uh, and so I know it felt like I dumped a ton on you in that first question, but our goal with those three guiding questions that guide critical whiteness praxis is to get folks to think mm -hmm. In, in in ways that move beyond individual white people or good and bad actors yeah. uh, and think more expansively about whiteness. And for me, like one of the revelations of this, and I think perhaps how folks might use this in practice is uh, whiteness operates really predictably across our mm -hmm. campus, but it also operates in sort of unique ways depending on the context, right? So mm -hmm. as you move through the book, you see there are really sort of unique manifestations of how whiteness functions in fraternity and sorority life versus, uh, uh, you know, Wilson O'Keller wrote a beautiful study, a uh, chapter on, on faculty publishing versus mm -hmm. student leadership versus LGBTQ centers. Um, you know, in, in some of the recent work I've been doing, right, like I've been studying race and whiteness in campus housing. Uh, there are certain ways that whiteness manifests in, in residence halls that are unique to the space of housing, right? The ability to put a mm -hmm. Confederate flag on your door and, and, and create a chilly and toxic environment or mm -hmm. racist and unwelcoming environment for the one black student on that floor. So one thing I, I, I would ask folks to think about, like in that instance, there are certain ways in which living on a residence hall floor allows for certain manifestations of whiteness mm -hmm. uh, that it would be different in a STEM classroom or yeah. in the library or in an athletic team. And so yep. that, that's one goal I would like to move folks forward with praxis is think about like, as you read these chapters, what are some of the unique ways whiteness yeah. is operating? And it's really helpful. And you you just gave some examples without really getting into them. But as you were saying, fraternity story of life, I was like, all right. And then housing, oh, right. And, and it, you know, just this, this, oh yeah, and athletics. Oh, wow, there's so many. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it's so helpful to me to hear that. Then I'm thinking too about, uh, those are functional areas within a campus. What about the University of Minnesota, McAllister College, University of Maryland, Kansas, mm -hmm. Oregon State, uh, Willamette, right? Each institution by size, by type, with mm -hmm. religious affiliation, with history, with geographical location, with culture, um, has its own sort of complexity, um, both you're pointing to some of the things within institutions and then across institutions as well. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things I hate about academic articles is the implications for practice are always the shortest and mm. often the least sort of thoughtful con contributions. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to like take us off the hook and say we don't have implications. I think the whole mm -hmm. second half of the book really speaks to the the, the practical applications. Uh, but I think context matters for sure. a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess one thing I hope all readers would take away from this, maybe in how they use it, is that uh, it gives us like a, a precision of language to name how whiteness is operating in no uncertain terms and the effects or the consequences of that. And we're not the first people to do that, right? We want to be in conversation with other scholars, critical race scholars, mm -hmm. uh, folks who study racism and anti-Blackness in higher ed. Mm -hmm. uh, we hope what, what the, the praxis piece can do, the critical whiteness praxis piece, I think, and Tanisha and I have talked about this, is give folks a real language to say, through the lens of white normativity, I'm beginning to see right. who is the expected occupant of this residence yeah. hall floor and who feels totally unwelcome yeah. and so forth. Yeah, and I really like that. Um, who's the expected document and then who are the exceptional guests? Because I yeah, think sometimes it becomes guests, yeah. the unwelcome guests. Because sometimes I think it becomes uh, who's there and then who's not. But oh, look, there's one or two. And so we're fine, mm -hmm. right? 
when and but that language of the unwelcome guest or the exceptional guest is sort of like their presence and the notability of it mm-hmm. is a sign of whiteness <laughs> being the normative uh kind of thing so i really appreciate bringing that in um tanisha what else do you want to say about praxis and then we'll we'll move to what the two of you learned through this process so you uh, Natasha Krum and I, when we wrote our chapter, we were <laughs> in a bunch of limbo. I, I I threw a bunch of ideas at Zach, like noodles at a wall, and he was like, mm-hmm. "What is? What do you? What do you want to do? Right? Like, I want you to do it." And so, what we ended up doing was landing on the charge was the relationship between whiteness and anti-blackness or anti-black racism. Mm-hmm. And so, what we what we ended up pushing ourselves towards is the possibility and the foreclosures, right, of doing anti-black racism work. Um, and and research. And what we found in a lot of work is that there is no analysis, even in some popular works on like how to be an anti-racist, right? There's this absence of an analysis of whiteness as a progenitor, as a foundation, as a bedrock for anti-Black racism. And so in ours, for those who want to do research in that area, we really push them to think about what are the possibilities and what is lost, right? What is gained when you add it? What is lost in your analysis when you do or don't take up whiteness as part of the analysis, right? As part of the this kind of operating system in the background, mm-hmm. right? As access this larger ideology that informs structures in, in the system. This is what mm-hmm. makes it systemic, right? Um, and um, this is also then for me, um, like Zach, it, this project was um, done in tandem with other research, of course, right? And so we're working on other projects and and I um, decided to look at it almost in, in the same way, it pushed me to look at whiteness in K-12 systems. I was asked to do this a long time ago and I just was not ready to to Mm. do it then um and really looking at the ways in which it manifests in the classroom and in social justice efforts in k-12 right um and so that has led myself Naomi nishi and mara uh, lee grayson to to, we wrote a small book on the gender transaction of whiteness to demonstrate the way whiteness is showing up in k-12 settings which are largely led by white women Mm -hmm. right and how that I don't want to say it automatically, right? But mm-hmm. how some of the ways, right? Those some similar theoretical underpinning pinnings guide our um, interactions, our interpersonal relationships, our teaching, um, and then you know I, I think lastly for me, uh, the biggest thing that I take away from this because you had asked professionally and personally, mm-hmm. um, and this has actually been the hardest part to grapple with, but a necessary part that led to a project. Um, with Zach and some other mighty scholars is looking at the ways that we've all internalized whiteness, mm-hmm. right? And how it is, it's reinforced in our daily lives, mm-hmm. right? Like, our, you know, our, our, how we've internalized our knowing and being and doing and these kind of normative standards, right? And, um, and how uh, that has shaped us. So again, moving beyond just white people, but the ways in which whiteness as a normative system impacts us all. Yeah, um, and is exercised by us, and so I I think the reflection is all around, right? It's not yeah. limited to just white people. Yeah, and I think that's really exciting because once you recognize it, then you want to break free from it. How have I internalized yeah. this? How how have I made this toxicity normal? And this is the way things yeah. are. And once you recognize that, then how do I get free from that? How do I separate from that for the benefit of, of everyone, including including myself, yourself? Um, yeah, I think that's really. Um, that's really an exciting and critical kind of turn uh, for folks, both personally, but also professionally. How do we do this as a housing system? How do we do this as um, lots of, as, lots as of scholars, yeah, right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. In our writing and our research and our teaching, but also running a fraternity sorority life system for, <laughs> you know, 10,000 students on a particular campus. Yeah. Um, I've had the opportunity to edit a book and, uh, and you did too. And so my guess is that you had some great ideas, reached out to dozens of brilliant folks. They gave you back some unexpected things that were just golden nuggets. Uh, so I'd love to hear from each of you. What is something that you learned through the process mm. of editing and interacting with the contributors and hearing their ideas and their banter, not just their final chapters, but sometimes it's, hey, I want to do this instead of what you asked me to do. 
Um, what is, uh, what's something that you learned from the process or since it's been out in the world and you've been talking about it for a year, what's something that has evolved for you since the book came out? That's a good question. I, I, I will say, so one of the things, um, again, uh, led by Zach, um, the majority of the authors in the book are people of color mm-hmm. and they wrote um, on their disciplines, but out of their theoretical disciplines for some of them, right? They were mm-hmm. all critical scholars and critical yeah. race scholars, but you're asking somebody who uses CRT to write about whiteness, right? Like, mm-hmm. so um, watching people go through that exercise was fascinating mm-hmm. to me. Um, you know, I, I would say having the opportunity to write with some of the most brilliant minds in higher education was mind blowing. You, you mentioned Wilson Akello, um, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there's a chapter on student leadership that was absolutely fantastic in the book. And so um, folks stretched themselves, right, in doing this work. And they were fearless, creative, um, steadfast um, in writing these chapters. And and like we mentioned, it cannot be lost during a pandemic, during racial unrest, during political incivility, right, Mm -hmm. with all the symbols afoot, Mm -hmm. as uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Natasha would say, uh, I would also say having the opportunity to work with Zach intimately, right? Like this was also, you know, we're all at home now, right? So it wasn't like I needed an appointment or I had to get on his calendar. Like we're talking to each other at random times of the day and the night to work on this. And, you know, his framing, his passion, I'm not gonna get emotional. His tangible investment in racial justice um, is, um, contagious, it's infectious. Um, his leadership was wonderful um, in this. It, you know, there was, it was unmatched. There, there was a point where Zach did not want his own chapters. So I'm, I'm, here's a fun fact, I'm gonna throw this yeah, out yeah. there. And so we're in a meeting with the stylist editors and I, unbeknownst to Zach said, hey, he doesn't want to write a chapter, <laughs> right? And the so, ending chapter. I didn't want to write the conclusion chapter. He didn't want to write the conclusion chapter. Oh no, he the intro he had to write, like exact. <laughs> but the 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 conclusion chapter he didn't want to write, and and I I watched that go through a lot of um, ups and downs in in the season of writing this book and in the season we were all living in. Yeah. Right, it was just a tough season for all of us, especially those deeply invested in racial justice. And I felt like it would have been a disservice, not just to the text, but to the field, had he Mm. not written it. It anchored, right? You go from the enormity of whiteness and you get to that last chapter and it anchored the book. It anchored the conversation. If you want to know where to go, read the chapter that he and Melvin Whitehead wrote. and then I will say for me, you know, I I had the fortunate pleasure of playing in the sandbox of key terms. So if you know anything about me, all I want to do is define words for the rest of my mm. career. And so being with Natasha, we spent a lot of time really discerning the concepts to write about the relationship between whiteness and anti-blackness and anti-black racism. And part of that is we unpacked something very personal to us as two black women in the field. Um, And so this chapter, that chapter in particular is what it is because of we are who we are, Mm -hmm. right? And that was, I I think it was one of the most moving and and the project itself is my favorite in writing that chapter with her. So having a chance to, to write and work with two of my favorite people was amazing. And, you know, the last thing I learned and I use this in in some other work, um, the reach of whiteness. Right. Like, I mean, it is it begs the question, you know, for how long are we going to pull this thread? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And and watch things unravel and yet still stay together. Um, and, and I think that that is kind of really where I am in, in the idea that I want to disrupt this work. Um, what else do I need to do to do it? Mm-hmm. Um, and it started with this project. So I'm very grateful that for the time and the investment. Well, I, I I love that. And I love that you started this project in the introduction on the enormity of whiteness. And that's the thing that you keep learning. It's it's not, it, it keeps getting bigger and bigger and more complicated and more in the bedrocks yeah. and the foundations of so many. That's that's powerful. Yeah. Zach, now that, now that Tanisha has embarrassed you and told stories yeah, of school, what are you, what did you learn? What did you evolve? Do you want to return direction. the favor? Pivot in a whole other direction. I will say in all seriousness, like, <laughs> 
this book, uh, as Tanisha said, most of the authors were authors of color and they were generous enough to give their time and write about things during perhaps some of the most emotionally taxing times mm-hmm. of their professional and personal lives, right? Um, and and I'm, I'm just forever grateful for that. Mm-hmm. I learned so much from this book yeah. uh, in writing it and editing it with Tanisha and, uh, you know, Tanisha's, uh, you know, just the the opportunity to co-edit it with Tanisha and and read these chapters through very different lenses, very different backgrounds, very different upbringings, and to come together and be in community like that was probably just like the most special thing I have ever done as a faculty yeah. member. I will never get to do again. So it's probably all downhill from here, uh, right? Like this you was the, too soon. Yeah, this, <laughs> uh, it was just a really special opportunity, um, and and I'm I'm just so grateful again for all the authors who were willing to give their time and. You know, you can you can talk critically about whiteness and not be a critical whiteness scholar, right? Like yeah. there are a lot of ways to analyze analyze whiteness, and and that came through throughout the book. I'll, I'll say again, though, like the big piece for me and Tanisha, and I constantly dialogued on it, and Keith, you just mentioned it, is that language, the enormity of whiteness, and all mm-hmm. of the nuanced ways in which it manifests. And uh, in that last chapter, um, Melvin and I wrote, uh, and I got I'll give something tangible. I often talk about. Um, and, and a lot of white folks write about whiteness as this, inv- it's invisible, right? That's the mm-hmm. irony of whiteness. It's invisible to those who mm-hmm. benefit from it. You know, Melvin said something. He said, you know, we got to stop saying whiteness is invisible because whiteness is not invisible yeah. to folks of color. It, you know, it's painfully obvious, right? And so that's one of those moments again for me, oh, how I'm crafting this, how I'm framing this. So and even so the framing of whiteness end. being invisible is the normativity of whiteness. Right. And right. So, yeah. so us, you know, white scholars can say whiteness is invisible, it's painfully obvious at every turn of campus for folks of color. And so that's one of, you know, the five things I think it is Melvin and I write about in that last chapter. And it was his yeah. idea to start that chapter from Bell Hooks's notion of starting from the margins, uh, mm-hmm. gazing on whiteness from the margins. And what, 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 what could we learn about whiteness if we started from that vantage point rather than individual white people and identities, which are important, mm-hmm. but this opens up sort of new ways of perhaps thinking about. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, we are just about out of time. It is flying by as we knew it would. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we always end with this question. So the podcast is called Student Affairs Now. So what are you thinking, troubling, or pondering now? It can be related to this conversation or other things that are on your mind. And if you also want to share where folks can connect with you, uh, feel free to go ahead and do that. Zach, what uh, is with you now? Yeah. Uh, one, I think just gratitude again for the opportunity of the book and the opportunity of Keith to be here with you and talk about it. I think since doing this book, you know, I said we need to move away from the study or just constantly talking about white people and identities. But one area I've been in lately and thinking about largely because of reading these chapters mm-hmm. uh, is thinking about all of the the socialization that white students experience about the significance of race prior to ever stepping foot on campus and, mm-hmm. and how much it effort and time it requires, particularly amongst other white folks to help unravel that conditioning and that socialization, right? That white students don't come to campus as blank slates or empty containers just waiting to be filled up with new knowledge. And uh, so some of the framing of this book has helped me launch this new project, um, have a paper coming out in JCSD here in a few months on that. Uh, But again, that notion of socialization and conditioning and how white students come to think about these issues prior to ever being with us on campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would probably say something similar. Um, like I said, working on exploring this in the K-12 space, mm-hmm. right? Looking at um, disparate outcomes, looking at, you know, increased diversity, yet um, there's still these pipeline to prisons for black girls and black boys and brown mm-hmm. boys and um, and just the stereotypes that continue to plague communities of color, but also, again, the ways in which we as people of color hold up these standards of professionalism or beauty or intellectual or even what it means to be hardworking um, and how we can what does it mean to disrupt that? What does it mean to, you, and and we're not saying these are causations either, right? Like right. these kind of theoretical underpinnings, but they are practices and they are widespread. They are adopted and they are exercised in, intensely um, in these spaces. And so really looking to uncover and think through um, that work um, in the K-12 space, right? What does mm-hmm. it mean to do an environmental scan? Like Zach said, what does it mean to stand 
in the margins and really look out and, and understand what is happening in those spaces. And also, I think how we can disrupt this whiteness manifestation in curriculum. I think it's going to be very important, right? Like not just adopting books like this, but you should, <laughs> right? But what does it mean to, what are, what are, how can we do better? How can we identify it in our classrooms and how do we do better and stop doing these excuses of, well, my field is neutral. Statistics mm -hmm. isn't neutral, bio isn't neutral, right? These are, these are fields that actually were the impetus and the author of a lot of yeah. how we come to be inferior, right? And so just looking at ways to disrupt that also in the classroom um, is an endeavor and a goal for me right now. I love that both of you are bringing me to the K-12 and I'm thinking, um, you know, Tisha, Tanisha, you mentioned what's going on in K-12 and Zach was talking about what are students coming to college with. And I'm just thinking about what the socialization of all students, white students as well, around race and how it's different from how I was socialized around race and how much of that is the location of the small homogeneous town that I grew up in and how much of it is the time versus what I see my my kids thinking not that the not that race isn't an issue but um they're talking about it in ways that I never talked about it mm -hmm. um they're talking about gender pronouns in ways that I never talked about they're talking about these things they're seeing things they they have access to things uh in a way that's very different it's still present mm -hmm. um but I, th there's a difference there um and I, you know, one of the things I'm often challenging our um, all of our higher ed colleagues is not to bring our mental model of our college experience because it's so outdated. Uh, yeah. Even even those of you who are 24, your mental model is really outdated. Mm -hmm. If you're thinking about your residence hall floor, your student government meeting, your dining hall experience, um, the college mm -hmm. student experience has just changed so much, and what they experienced beforehand has changed so much as well. And now, listen, we're affirmative action has, yep. you know, hit the scene. So it's, mm -hmm. there's going to be more to talk about, right? And right. I think that this right. book is going to be one of those books that, again, opens an, the door to have a substantively critical conversation yeah. going forward. Well, and race conscious admissions was always a tool. It wasn't the goal. It was a tool no. to create more equity, more justice, um, more representation, uh, yeah. better learning environments for everyone, not just for those who got in. Sure. And so I, I love that the book is pointing to a lot of other practices that can still be used to move us towards some of these admirable goals that we want to get to. So thank you yeah. both so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's been terrific having you. Thank you so much for the book and the editors and the contributors who 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 you mentioned many of them and many more. Uh, please check out the book. We'll include some links in our show notes where you can get it. Thanks to both of you for joining us today to talk about this. Uh, and thanks as well to our sponsor today, Simplicity. Simplicity is the global leader in student services technology platforms with state-of-the-art technology that empowers institutions to make data-driven decisions specific to their goals. A true partner to the institution, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life, including but not limited to career services and development, student conduct and well-being, student success, and accessibility services. To learn more, visit simplicity.com or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. As always, a huge shout out to Nat Ambrosi, our producer, who does all the behind-the-scenes work to make us look and sound good. And we love the support of, for these important conversations from our community. You can help us reach even more folks by subscribing to the podcast, YouTube, and weekly newsletter, announcing each new episode and more. If you're so inclined, you can leave us a five-star review. I'm Keith Edwards. Thanks again to the fabulous guests today and to everyone who is watching and listening. Please make it a great week. Thank you all. <laughs>